It's September 1941. Nazi Germany's persecution of the Jews reaches deep into the Vienna-Austria branch of the church. Jewish converts Olga Wies and her adult son Egon are caught in the middle of their newfound religion and their Jewish heritage. This and more are next in Chapter 26, War's Foul Brood. This is Saints, Volume 3, the podcast. Welcome to the Saints podcast. I'm Shailen Back. And I'm James Perry. Joining us today is Petra Javadi Evans, an assistant editor for the Saints Project, and James Miller, a church history specialist. Thank you for joining us today, and welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for having me. Well, Petra, we are grateful for the work you do on the Saints Project, and you play a really important role in helping it all come together. But would you mind explaining what it is you do in your role on a on a day-to-day basis? So I help check all factual claims that we make in Saints to ensure that we're being accurate and true to the sources that we're citing. I compare what we've written to what the sources say and look for discrepancies between those two. I check that the sources are accurate within the historical time period that we're talking about. And I balance primary sources and secondary sources and make sure that we're giving more weight to primary sources over secondary sources. And then I also make sure that we show our scholarship through clear citations and give um, other researchers and readers the opportunity to know what sources we're using. And if they want to look at them, then they can go and get further information. So you really have to be able to pay attention to lots of different bits of information at very close detail. Yeah, a lot of every detail, basically. James, you're also joining us from outside the United States. Can you tell us what you do in the church history department and some projects you're currently working on? Sure. Currently, I'm located, at the time of this recording, I'm located in Kiev, Ukraine. I'm on assignment as the church history department's specialist or manager uh, supervising church history activities in the Europe East area. Generally, I'm part of a team that supports the church history department's work in all of Europe, all of Africa, as well as the Middle East. Uh, That's kind of our section of the world, pretty wide section. There's a lot to do. So I'm involved in efforts to collect church history records, record interviews with members of the church about their experiences serving in various callings, as well as training local church historians to keep their own history. I've also been very closely involved in the establishment of records preservation centers. These are record repositories in different parts of the world in various countries that allow the church to collect and preserve the history locally without having to send things over borders or to the church history library in Salt Lake City. So that's been one of the major highlights of my career, actually. That's a big job. And I'm just thinking how incredible it is that we have the technology to bring us all together to be able to get your insights and what you're currently doing right now. (laughs) It's amazing. Yes. Well, it's great to have you both here to talk about this chapter where we're going to be able to dive into some of the wartime experiences of Latter-day Saints. Perhaps to get started, you could both begin by telling us what you enjoyed about this chapter, and perhaps you could share which of the stories particularly caught your attention. It's hard to say that this was an enjoyable chapter. I mean, we have World War II breaking out 
But I think if I were to talk about the things that I enjoyed about the chapter, I think it's just seeing how these different saints navigated the start of World War II and how it affected them and then their reaction to it. Like we have a missionary who, this young North American missionary who's tasked with finding these missionaries in these precarious circumstances of Germany getting ready to invade Poland. And then we have these sisters in Great Britain dealing with not having a branch anymore because they don't have priesthood brethren to make the branch work and function. So they are continuing to have the gospel in their lives the best that they can. Thank you. James, what are your thoughts? I agree with Petra said. I think readers will benefit from being able to see these variety of different experiences that members of the church had at the start of the war. Maybe when we talk about World War II, we immediately jump to military history, right? All the different battles, the conflict. But here we get to see regular people not necessarily involved in fighting. These are people that we as members of the church can relate to because they share our faith and we're able to see how they react to the very difficult circumstances they've been placed into. Well, both of you mentioned what a difficult chapter this was to read and what a difficult time this was for the saints. And I just wanted to share my favorite part of the chapter too. (laughs) But this was just a little bit of, it made it a little bit lighter when we read about Connie and Paul getting married and then they took their honeymoon to Kirtland and Niagara Falls and then Palmyra. Yeah, it provides a little bit of relief from the tension (laughs) elsewhere. Definitely. I think that is one of the really interesting things about this volume of saints is that people have heard about the Second World War, but they don't know the Latter-day Saint experience. And this goes for many of the other events that we're going to document in the book that people will be reading probably for the first time. And so sometimes the historians in the Saints Project work with the writers, and we don't try and shy away from the difficult or the distressing or the faith questioning moments, we confront all of these. But we also do try, with the example of Paul and Connie, try to provide the human experience to show that in the midst of all the trials and conflicts, there is joy. And I liked your point, James, because there are millions of men and women who go away in military service, but there are many millions more who are still at home trying to get by, trying to go through the war on the home front, as it was. And so these are the kinds of issues that we reflect on as we're preparing and thinking about what a story might look like. Well, let's jump into the chapter by talking about the very dramatic missionary evacuations from across Europe. I think many readers might have their own experiences of being guided by the Spirit in particular and unique situations. I know I've had my own. James, you're here in Europe with me. Could you perhaps help readers who might be unfamiliar with the geography of Europe understand the magnitude of this undertaking? So when you look at the map of the world, do a little bit of comparison here. Europe might seem a little compact compared to North America or Africa, but that doesn't mean it's small, especially if we're talking about 1930s Europe, where there's no internet, no cell phones. You don't have this instantaneous communication. You have different modes of transportation. You get to and from Europe primarily by boat. So this was a great logistical challenge for the church. At the time, the the European mission, uh, which is an administrative unit that we would probably compare with an area today, the European mission included 10 missions in Europe, as well as a mission in the Middle East and one in Africa as well. 
But you had these 10 missions in the British Isles, French-speaking Europe. You had three missions in German-speaking Europe, added in the Netherlands, and then the three missions that the church had in Scandinavia at the time. Over 300 missionaries in branches scattered across this vast area. And how do you communicate with them over these distances in an era before cell phones and the internet? How do you get them out in a timely manner, especially when we're considering that how quickly the war started, how little time there was? This was a logistical challenge, a geographic challenge, one for which there were a few precedents in the history of the church. Well, thank you for setting that up so we can understand this a little bit better. James, will you tell us a little bit about the state of the church in Europe at the outbreak of the war? So by 1939, when World War II breaks out, the church had established a fairly reliable foundation across Western Europe, the British Isles, Scandinavia, and was making really good progress comparatively in Central Europe as well. If you want to talk centers of strengths, this sort of modern terminology we use sometimes to describe development of the church, really the centers of membership were in Great Britain, in Scandinavia, kind of spread out a little bit more over Scandinavia, and then really concentrated in Germany as well. The church in Germany grew rapidly after World War I. You had tens of thousands of converts. The needs were so great that by the late 1930s, they organized three missions out of one. Really spectacular progress. So at the time, the church in Europe was still administered by missions. At this point in time, the church was not establishing stakes in Europe, or for that matter, around the world like we do today. And so mission presidents had this dual role of both supervising missionary work as well as administering a local church, uh, supervising the districts and the branches as well. And unsurprisingly, a lot of the missionaries came from North America, but there were an increasing number of local missionaries as well, both elders and sisters. Some of them served as branch leaders. Depending on which mission you were in, there were an increasing number of local branch leaders as well. Some missions made this an important initiative to put local members of the church in charge of their branches. And that need really became clear as war clouds were hovering over Europe in the late 1930s. So in 1938, what was called the Sudeten Crisis, Germany demanded that Czechoslovakia cede some border regions that were populated by German speakers. And the First Presidency instructed that all the missionaries from the Czechoslovak mission and the two missions in Germany withdraw for a period of time when it seemed like tensions might escalate into open conflict. And this kind of became a little bit of a dress rehearsal for the evacuation that we see in 1939. The instructions came, the missionaries traveled out to Denmark. Eventually they come back to their mission fields. I think it was about a month or so that they were out of their fields. But when the missionaries are gone, the local members remain. And as I'm reviewing this story, I came across this little report from the East German mission when the missionaries left. The East German mission history noted that during the absence of the missionaries from their fields of labor, members were called upon to take over their offices, which they did with integrity and earnestness. The call came and they answered. This is a great little short summary of this progression towards increased local self-reliant leadership in the church in Europe. And so this is generally the status of the church as war was breaking out. Well, thank you for that, James. Uh, you mentioned about how local members are taking on the leadership and taking on the responsibilities. As war breaks out and we see the missionaries leaving, this time they're really going. How did that impact morale? I'd be curious if you could just give us a bit of insight into that. Well, I think the missionary evacuation was a bit disheartening to members of the church because 
it's a signal that something's not right, that it's not safe for them to stay. As we look at other instances in church history where missionaries have been withdrawn for one reason or another, there's a sense of loss to a certain extent. Certainly that was felt. But the church by no means fell apart. The missions were trying to put local members in place, in positions of responsibility. And so as you have the withdrawal of the North American missionaries at the beginning of the war, not only are their local branch leaders, both women and men, in place to take over the affairs of their congregations, but the mission leadership as well is entrusted into the hands of local Latter-day Saints. You have acting or interim mission presidents appointed in each of the different missions with counselors to oversee the affairs of the mission while the North Americans have been withdrawn. And during the war, that was important because communication lines were disrupted. Travel obviously was dangerous due to attacks at sea. And so having this local leadership was important. And they eventually proved themselves very capable. And not just those mission presidencies as well. Missions at the time often would have Relief Society, primary young women, MIA leaders as well. And so you had this collaboration of local leaders coming together to really sustain the general membership of the church in their countries. Well, thank you, James. This story just really sucked me in and I was feeling so much anxiety over it. I just was really stressed out for everyone involved. And I'm just wondering if there might be some readers who might read this story and they might worry if there's maybe creative license being taken with this retelling. Could you maybe tell us a little bit about the ways this story was told and has been analyzed by the editorial team? The drama in the scene is there because the drama was there in the sources. So we stayed true to what the sources were telling us. And we're looking at it from Norman's perspective, and we're looking at it from other individuals who were involved in the evacuation. And then we're also putting that into the broad historical context of this is the eve of the invasion of Poland. And so we're making sure that those things that Norman talks about, like maybe the Dutch border closing down, or the train systems are about to be overrun by troops, or how you don't want to carry a lot of money at this point while you're in Germany. We're looking at that also from broad historical context, like were these things that were actually occurring at this time, and they're not just some young missionary saying these things. These are real things that not just this missionary Norman was dealing with, but all the German people. Again, I look at every sentence and will sometimes go word by word, and I'm checking to see is this detail in the source? And if it's not there, then I'm asking the historian and writer, hey, we have this detail. I'm not seeing in what we've already listed. Did you find it somewhere else? Can you tell me where that is so that we can add that here so that we're supporting these claims that we're making? If it's not there, then we remove it. We're not adding anything into this story because we didn't need to because it was already all there in the source. Well, it's incredible that we had all those sources to really make it real. So thank you for sharing that additional information. I think we can see that Norman and the evacuation of the missionaries is obviously going to be a real test for the saints in Europe. It's going to be a test of their ability to withstand the pressures of the war while also trying to operate the church and live the gospel. And that's why I think Nellie's story in this chapter is so good. And Nellie's not at war. She's a housewife. She's got a young adopted daughter. But she is trying to do the best that she can in the situation that she can. And I think that's all the Lord ever asks of us, is us to try our best in the things that we're doing. 
And Petra, I'd be just really interested, starting with you here, what was it about this story that stood out to you as you worked on it? Well, I just loved that, you know, well, A, that it's a female perspective. So we have a woman here and we're getting her perspective on the war, which is going to be much different than a missionary's experience or a male church leader's experience. And so that was exciting for me to see, well, how's this woman, this member, this sister, how is she going to continue when all the priesthood administration has been taken and that her branch has been dissolved, like it's no longer functioning because they don't have priesthood brethren to administer. She just continues doing those small and simple things that we've been told to do ourselves. She's been the Relief Society president. She still acts in that function with the sisters that are still there with her. And she goes out and visits them and has done visiting each other. And then she's also holding a Sunday school almost in her home with these sisters where they're getting together and they're praying and they're singing and then they're teaching each other the gospel. They're continually inviting the spirit into their lives and just moving forward for not knowing what the future held, they just keep going. And I aspire to the faith and the dedication that these women showed in the circumstances that they were in. They didn't give up. They just kept going and doing the, the best that they could. Thank you for sharing your thoughts about this. Let's listen now to a description from the book of how the church in Cheltenham was affected by the war. Nellie and the other Cheltenham saints did their best to endure after the attack. When British Mission President Hugh B. Brown and other North American missionaries left the country nearly a year earlier, the small branch and others like it struggled to fill callings and run church programs. Then the local men went away to war, leaving no priesthood holders to bless the sacrament or formally administer branch business. Before long, the branch was forced to disband. James, how common was it for this to happen where branches or wards are just forced to disband? This was a huge issue for the church in Europe, especially in the British mission during the war. This was one of the greatest organizational challenges that these interim mission presidencies would face after they would take charge. So British mission president Hubie Brown and the North American missionaries leave by the end of 1939. So in general, the mission presidency in Britain, just to, as an example, since we're talking about England here, the mission presidency was led by this Russian immigrant convert, Andre Anastasion, along with his counselors, Relief Society primary leaders, and they sought to continue church activities as normal as possible. But they had to make these adaptations because of the lack of priesthood holders available to serve in callings and perform priesthood ordinances. So one way that they sought to infuse extra strength into these small, struggling, or isolated branches was by calling local missionaries during the war. And these included sister missionaries. So the British mission continued to field full-time missionaries, members of the church called and who would serve full-time, just like a regular missionaries from North America would do. And they also had part-time missionaries. They called these home missionaries who would dedicate a few hours a week to sharing the gospel or fulfilling other assignments. On top of their regular work and church assignments and their family obligations. So in addition to strengthening the branches, Andre and the other mission leaders also promised these saints that they would be blessed in the face of this uncertainty 
if they answered this call to serve. They wanted to provide the local saints with the opportunity to receive blessings through service. So Andre later reported that he told the local members, it makes no difference whether you have means or not to serve a mission. The Lord will provide. But still, you had this situation where the war drained the Church of Active Priesthood holders uh, as they responded to the call to defend their country. And so you had instances where some branches were combined or discontinued. At a certain point, this became so critical that Andre goes to the war office of the British government in London, and he requests that some of the church's priesthood leaders be granted exemptions from military service so that they can continue to serve in their local callings. The government had granted similar exemptions for clergy of other denominations. The officials with whom Andre met studied the issue, but they came back to him and asked whether this was really the best course of action. The country needed every able-bodied man so to speak, uh, to serve in a time of war. Andre said that the official with whom he talked said, His Majesty the King needs every man in a crucial struggle for our liberty. I love Andre Anastasion. He found an adequate response. He reemphasized that Latter-day Saints had answered the call of their country and added, Do you not think that the King of Kings needs a few men to carry on his work? Eventually, they do secure a few exemptions for priesthood leaders to stay and support the members of the church. So you get a sense of the tension, the efforts to find solutions, some of the creativity that was happening in Europe during the war. Thank you, James. And of course, this really was a huge issue for the church because we know that when the war broke out, many of the priesthood chose to go in the defense of their country. And in the time that we're talking about in this chapter, we've got faithful Latter-day Saints, some of whom have grown up in the church. They've gone through to youth activities and conventions, and the call comes and they go. And I love the quote that we just listened to, because President Hubie Brown, he leaves, he goes back to North America, but his son, Hugh Card Brown, comes back straight away as a voluntary pilot for the Royal Air Force. And he dies He's an American, and at this point, he's there to try and defend the UK. He's there to defend the people that his family love. And he was a beloved member of the church by British saints. And it is inspiring in the face of the horrors of the war. And there's a great story that takes place in 1940. The war is still in its infant stages where British Latter-day Saints have joined up and we've got Latter-day Saints that have gone onto the continent to fight for the British army. And the incident of Dunkirk might be known by some listeners. And this is just an example of the many stories that could have been included in Saints, but we just couldn't accomplish it. But that day, there were many Latter-day Saints on the beaches, British Latter-day Saints who were trapped by the German forces who were advancing. Some of them managed to make it back. Others one we've got great accounts from, was captured. And as he was left behind to hold the defences so that the rest of the army could evacuate, this brother was captured and taken away. His brother was helping to evacuate, again, an active Latter-day Saint. His brother was helping to evacuate the men from the beaches on board a ship, which was sunk. And so straight away, that day, two priested. They didn't know that their son was captured, but one family lost two of the priested from their small branch. and. You know, the war was just devastating. It was devastating on families. It was devastating on the church. 
And we're going to read of the following stories about really faithful examples of Latter-day Saints trying to do the best they can in a really complicated world. Well, continuing this theme of living in uncertainty, we'd love to talk about Olga and Egon Weiss. So James Perry, will you just share how you found Olga and Egon and then how you discovered what happened to them? Well, that is a great question because there are several parts to their story. We know that the church keeps records. It preserves as much as it can about the history of the church. And the letter that it talks about in the chapter, we have a copy of Egon's letter that he wrote to the church requesting aid. And there are many really sad letters that the church received from people seeking help before, during, and after the war as a result of the Nazi rise to power and all of the subsequent horrible things that happened. So we have this letter, and there are several publications that have touched on the experiences of Latter-day Saints in the war. However, the way that the chapter ends is with this very dramatic cliffhanger. And I don't want to give too much of the story away, but we're fortunate that we aren't the only organization that has preserved records. And there are Jewish organizations that have done tremendous work to preserve, record, and disseminate records relating to the atrocities that Jewish people experienced in the war, such as health reports or transportation reports or oral histories that have been preserved. And so for this story to be written, there are many different sources that have been drawn upon to help us, including the Jeep's records of how they dealt with the situation. And I think it just goes back to the point that if there's no records, there's no history. And that's why the church history department's efforts, whether that's writing the history or recording or preserving the records, each of these stages has a really important part in the telling of the story of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And in a future episode, I will go into a bit more depth about how exactly we were able to find out what happened to Olga and Egon. Can I say something about the Egon? I just want to say, I'm racially Jewish. I have Jewish ancestry that was killed by the Nazis in Lithuania during the Holocaust. And so I didn't know this scene existed until I got to it. And so that, as someone who had family who died in that, they weren't Latter-day Saints, they were Jewish, that died in the Holocaust. This was a scene that caused a lot of different emotions within me, not just because of what was happening to Jews in Europe at this time during World War II, but also the response of the church a little bit to these Jews who are, and there's other refugees and other people that are writing in, but as someone that is related to Jews, um, just reading these Jewish letters that were coming in to the church, asking for help and pleading for help and feeling a mix of emotions, some anger as I like read through a lot of this. Uh, yeah, a lot of anger and just frustration and just sadness all at the same time of about this scene and kind of not coming out of it in a really good place. Then having to continually read through more and more sources about what awful things happened to Jews during this time and just thinking, why couldn't have the church have just left these people out of Europe and supported them and how 
how that broke my heart to read that. And just knowing that as a racially Jewish, I, had I been in their situation as a Latter-day Saint, that I would have been in their circumstances. And as I was reading through some of the sources, I read this quote that stood out to me. I'm in this book about Hitler by Andrew Wilson. And he writes, the white queen in Through the Looking Glass remarked that it is a poor sort of memory which only works backwards. Without an understanding of this truth, the study of history is impossible. Most people are not capable of seeing into the future. Hindsight allows us to see things which were invisible to them. And to us, these things seem so blindingly obvious that we wonder how could they have been so blind? And I think coming back with all the knowledge that we have about World War II and what was going to happen with the Holocaust and so forth, I was coming in with those feelings and looking at the church presidency and being like, well, why, how could you be so blind to what was happening? And they didn't know. They, at this point, were in the beginnings of World War II. They don't really have an understanding of what's going to happen to the Jews. And the Jews themselves don't know what's necessarily going to happen to them. And having... It turns out reading more history brought me more peace into the situation and gave me a good grounding into understanding that like history is messy and they were doing the best that they could with the information that they had. And not everything, not all the consequences or conclusions of those decisions that were made are necessarily great, but they did the best that they could. And who am I to judge them for decisions they made with what they had. Well, Petra, thank you so much for sharing such a personal connection and a very tender connection with this chapter. We are so glad that you were so willing to open up about your experience. So thank you. And James, thank you too for for joining us today. We've really learned a lot from both of your perspectives and the additional context and insights that you were able to give into this chapter. Thanks again for joining us. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. We hope you enjoyed it. We hope you took away some new insights into this volume. And we would love to hear your thoughts, opinions, questions, and insights from this chapter of Saints. And you can email saintspodcast at churchofjesuschrist.org. It would be great to hear from you.